2: Hello, everyone. Welcome to New Books Network. This is Mortaza Hajizadeh, your host from Critical Theory Channel, and today we are pl- we are honored to have Professor Eric Adler with us. Uh, Doctor Eric Adler is a professor of classics at the University of Maryland, and his scholarly interests include Roman historiography, Latin prose, and the history of classical scholarship and the history of humanities. And uh, today he's here to talk uh, with us about his latest book, *The uh, Battle of Classics*. Uh, Eric, welcome to New and Network. Thank you very much. It's wonderful to be with you. Um, it's customary to ask our uh, guests to talk a little bit about themselves, about their field of expertise. Uh, you're up, you're, you, you've studied literature and classics. Can you tell us a little about yourself and how you became interested in these fields?
1: Yeah, sure. Um, so I was compelled during high school To study foreign languages. I had previously in grade school studied French, but um, it was in high school at my public high school that Latin was available. And I just decided, I think in part because I was irritated with the instruction in French, that I would take Latin. And so I took four years of high school Latin. And I didn't think at the time that I was going to be a classicist or anything like that. But when I went to college, there was a. requirement, a foreign language requirement when I, in college. And the easiest thing for me to do was to continue to take Latin because I'd already done four years of it. Well, so I started to take Latin in college and I discovered that I liked it and I thought I was better at it than I think I thought I was in high school. And so I continued on with it and ultimately majored in uh, the classical languages, took ancient Greek as well. And sort of from there decided that I ultimately wanted to go to graduate school for classical studies
2: and uh, this book the battle of classics i was amazed when i came across the book first because you're aware and i'm sure many of our listeners are aware there is currently a battle between those who study humanities and those who study stems or politicians encouraging students to study stem because apparently studying literature or classics according to them is a waste of time and it's not going to lead to a job mm-hmm. um so tell us how the book came about. And when, when I read the book, so apparently these kind of talks or these kind of debates were, were also were also there at the end of the 19th century in the United States. So can you please tell us how the book came about first?
1: Yeah, sure. So the origin of the book really um, is related to the previous book that I worked on. So a book that came out in 2016 called Classics, the Culture Wars and Beyond, which was from University of Michigan Press. And that book examined the role of classical studies in the 1980s and 1990s during the so-called academic culture wars uh, in the United States. And as part of my work for that book, I did a chapter on the history of classics in American higher education, going all the way from the 17th century all the way to the present. So as you might imagine, I learned a great deal about a subject that I really didn't know very much about at all. And from doing the research on that chapter, I ended up hitting upon a couple of key ideas or um, avenues of research that ended up being really important to writing the Battle of the Classics. The first was um, a discovery that there was something that historians of American higher education call the Battle of the Classics, which was a late 19th century curricular battle over what the role of the classical humanities should be in American higher education, whether Latin and Greek should still be required subjects of all students who go to college in the United States. So I found out that there was such a thing called the battle of classics. That was one. And then second, I found out from doing the research for the previous book about a guy named Irving Babbitt, who I knew nothing about, But when I was reading histories of American higher education, his name kept on coming up as somebody who was a prominent critic of the directions in which the universities in the United States had gone, and who was a prominent defender of both the classical and the modern humanities. And so I saw his name sufficiently that I felt like I should read something by this guy because his name keeps on coming up. So I took a book called Literature in the American College, which was a book from 1908, his first published book out of the library and read it. And to my surprise, I think it's the best critique of the American university movement that's ever been written. And when I read it, I thought, wow, I can't believe I've never heard of this guy. I can't believe people don't talk about this guy. He's a first-rate thinker. And I think this is the kind of person who could be the linchpin for a future book. So in between those two subjects, the Battle of Classics itself, but then Irving Babbitt's thought overall, that's sort of how I cobbled together the idea for uh, the book as a whole.
2: And uh, you mentioned a very important figure about whom we'll talk about a little bit further as we go ahead. So let me ask you a very broad question. Uh, you're a professor of classics. Obviously, you teach a lot of students and they come to you. They might ask you, why should we study classics? Do, do you currently think that humanities are going through a crisis, especially after COVID-19? Because there's a lot yeah, of negative that- perception about it.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's sort of a difficult question to answer because I think it sort of depends on what you mean by crisis. Um, So uh, a a number of writers would suggest um, that, well, the humanities are always in crisis, um, that there's always a sense that there was some lost golden age in the past and that things were better at certain times and that this is maybe even baked into at least the modern humanities, if not the classical humanities before them. Is this some sense of loss, cultural loss or what have you? Um, so there is a sense in which you could argue that, well, it's a little myopic to sort of suggest that now we're in a crisis, whereas we weren't in a crisis in the 1970s and we weren't in a crisis in the 1950s and we weren't in a crisis in 1900. You know, there are a number of arguments that could be made. But if you I think if you look at what's going on in the ground, at least in American higher education, it's really hard to make the argument that the humanities are doing well uh, in American institutions of higher learning so that we're seeing in part because of COVID and pe- part because of budget cuts, but I think in part because of a strong strain of utilitarianism, the cutting of various humanities programs from colleges uh, across the nation and universities across uh, the United States. Um, The great diminishment in the number of majors in these areas as well. And a more general sense, I think that the humanities are kind of peripheral to the mission of the university, which should be chiefly about job training and transferable skills uh, for job training. So, I don't know if I'd use the word crisis exactly, but I don't think it could be argued that the humanities are doing well right now. And I think there's a real reason why people who are concerned about the humanities, but also the liberal arts more broadly, should be very
2: concerned about what's happening globally in higher education. Uh, You actually um, touched upon an important point. I did a PhD in English literature. It was very difficult for me to get a job in university. I'm not working in university now. I am work in the education sector, in the public sector, for, uh, for a government-funded organization. And my role is to do research to find out what new skills the workforce might need and what skills standards need to be incorporated in vocational certificates. And I have to read a lot of reports. and. Uh, uh, and, and we, in our organization, we need to encourage people to do vocational training as opposed to going to university. Which is not to say that we need to discourage them from going to university. And there's always this discussion uh, coming from government or those in industry that the universities are not producing job-ready people. And the question I always ask myself is: the role of university to produce uh, job-ready people? Is it because the way the governments are talking uh, uh, about this is that as if universities are only supposed to produce people who are ready to get out and get a job, whereas this is only maybe one of the, uh, let's say, missions of a university. Mm -hmm.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. So, and one of the things I try to argue about in my book, I'm not arguing that people don't need to have jobs when they finish college and that this isn't a practical reality that most people face. It obviously is. Um, But I am very concerned that higher education in the United States and elsewhere will become only that. That it will, Mm -hmm. that's all it will be is a sort of job training. And it seems to me that the university can do so much more than that. And in fact, for there to be a healthy society, it needs to do much more than that. Mm -hmm. Um, If we think that we can educate our children to become adults and citizens in our own um, countries, who have never seriously pondered what it means to be a good person or their own answers to life's great questions, and we merely give them job-ready skills, why do we think that these people are going to go out and do good in the world? Right. So this is another way that universities tend to pitch themselves, is that we do all kinds of wonderful things for society. Well, if... The students at those institutions have not even really thought about what it means to be a good person. How are we so certain that they're going to use their job-ready training in some sort of beneficent um, service to society overall? So there's a sense of short-sightedness, I think, about making uh, American or any kind of higher education merely about job training as opposed to job training plus
2: all these other things that I think um, education ought to do. And speaking of skills, um, defenders of humanities, all well-meaning people who want to put up a good case for humanities, uh, according to you, they do it from the wrong stance because they emphasize soft skills, critical thinking skills, as if other majors don't teach those skills. So what is your argument that, that they, have, they, have, they tend to do more harm maybe sometimes than good?
1: Yeah. First of all, I would mention that I completely agree with you that these people who are trying to make arguments for the humanities, their heart is in the right place. These are people who want what I want. They want a flourishing, broader, higher education, something that does more than vocational training and so forth. So I I should only be so critical of them because, you know, ultimately they're on my side, I guess um, you might say. But I do think that there's something historically really wrong, and that's where the Battle of Classics comes in, which we'll talk about in a bit, presumably, but also wrong today about focusing on the humanities as merely conduits for skills. And that, I think, is an argument, as I try to make many times in different ways in the course of my book, this is a losing argument. Now, it doesn't mean that we shouldn't focus at all on the skills that someone gets over the course of their education, including in the humanities. I think that would be short-sighted too. But I do think that it's a huge mistake only to focus on skills. And the most prominent example I offer in the book is something called critical thinking, right? So the, the most prominent, I don't know if this is true in Australia or it's true in the UK, but the most prominent argument you'll hear from humanists trying to save the humanities in America is that the humanities need to Uh, Be retained in American higher education because they offer critical thinking, and that's what students need. Well, so one problem with that is that these people who defend the humanities in this manner never define what critical thinking actually is, or seldom define what that actually is. So, is there an uncritical thinking? Um, Or is there some sort of a semi-critical thinking, you know, and so forth? Isn't all thinking critical by its very nature? Because if that's the case, then merely you're arguing that the humanities teach people how to think, but sort of everything teaches people how to think. So this is sort of one problem. The second thing is that it seems to me, at least in the American context, but I think this is true internationally as well. If you want to save humanistic disciplines on a college campus, you have to argue that the humanities do something that other disciplines don't do. Right. And if you say that the humanities offer critical thinking and that's the reason why you need to save, say, an English department or a classics department in the United States, the provost will tell you, oh, don't worry, we can still cut English and we can still cut classics because sociology offers critical thinking and nursing offers critical thinking and math offers critical thinking and so forth. So if you base your your case on skills that everybody thinks, no matter what their subject matter is, that they inculcate, then you've actually not offered a a kind of unique vision for what the humanities actually do. And so I argue in the book that these sorts of, for a number of other reasons as well, that these skills-focused or skills-alone kind of arguments are always going to lead to failure.
2: Um, We'll talk about maybe what's the right stance to humanities towards the end of interview when you have covered some of the materials in the book. Let's talk about the origins of humanities briefly, the Roman origins of the humanities, and then you talk about the scholastic movement that happened in the 11th century and the birth of seven liberal arts. So just Mm -hmm. to put things into perspective and give uh, uh, some background to our listeners would be great if you could talk about that.
1: Yeah, sure. So um, the second chapter of my book focuses as quickly as possible. It's not a short chapter, but I try to do it as quickly as I can. A kind of history of the humanistic tradition. Um, from Roman antiquity and to some degree from its Greek predecessors as well, all the way up to the present. So you get some sense of kind of where the humanities have been and where they are and what the arguments have been and how the humanities have been reshaped and so forth. And one thing I focus on is the first articulation, extant articulation of the humanities comes from the pen of Cicero, a first century BC orator and philosopher and statesman and even sometimes poet who talks about in some of his work something that he calls the studia humanitatis or the studies of humanity or the studies of civilization. And he lays out in some of his work a kind of approach to what he calls a humanistic education or what we might call a humanistic education. He calls it studia humanitatis um, that's going to inculcate certain values in those students who have studied these particular subjects. Um, I also focus in the book on the fact that Cicero's conception of the humanities is highly influenced by Greek predecessors. So he has a very Greek understanding, I suppose, of the disciplines that make up the humanities, which for Cicero is the same as the liberal arts. In fact, Cicero is the first person in our extant literature to use the phrase liberal arts or artes liberales, which according to him, the liberal arts are the same as the humanities. And this is something that changes over time, but for him, it's the same. So for him, it's the humanities and the liberal arts are a kind of lifelong, all encompassing approach to education, appropriate for a free born person, attuned to higher ideals that is going to lead to a certain kind of moral improvement in uh, the student who has studied those particular subjects. So that's the sort of dominant approach. There are some changes, but this is the sort of dominant approach um, in Roman antiquity um, to the humanities. And then I focus also, as you suggested, on the fact that in the fifth century AD, a guy named Martianus Capella wrote a treatise in which he enumerates what ultimately are called the seven liberal arts. Um, and a uh, 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 quadrivium and trivium, and so forth, and this gets set up in the ninth century, um, and this leads to the sort of medieval university, which sets up in the twelfth and thirteenth century, um, and that ends up being dominated by a kind of influence of a movement called scholasticism. Uh, the chief thinker associated with scholasticism is Thomas Aquinas, and the approach to education that is favored by the scholastics is heavily theological and heavily logic-based and dialectic-based and much less focused on um, rhetoric um, and grammar than would have been the case for ancient approaches to education. And it's that model of education that dominates the early European universities and against
2: which the Renaissance humanists uh, revolted. Mm-hmm. And that's the, that's the part that you call rebirth of humanities, which was in a way an opposition to that the scholastic tradition, right? That's right. Can you briefly tell tell us about that? And also you mentioned an important character, Leonardo Bruni, if I'm pronouncing the name correctly. That's right. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So um, in the Italian Renaissance, which begins in the 13th century, um, but I suppose the sort of quintessential figure, the quintessential early figure associated with the Renaissance is Petrarch. the Renaissance humanists start to revolt against this scholastic dominated approach to the liberal arts, which uh, dominates European higher education and puts uh, forward, the Renaissance humanists put forward a different approach to higher education that is centered uh, more on rhetoric, poetry, uh, and so forth, and less on logic, metaphysics, and theology. Um, They take their inspiration from Cicero, chiefly, Um, In fact, uh, Coluccio Salutati, who had been the teacher, an Italian humanist who was a teacher of Leonardo Bruni, is the first person in the Renaissance to use that term. And he hearkens back to Cicero for his own vision of a good education. But actually, the Renaissance humanists made a kind of core change to the humanistic tradition from what Cicero had come up with. To Cicero, the humanities are the same as the liberal arts. That means that the sciences are included in the humanities as Cicero's conception is concerned. But the Renaissance humanists cut off um, the humanities from uh, essentially the quadrivium. They cut it off from um, science, logic and so forth. And they focus instead on grammar um, and rhetoric and especially the reading of Latin and Greek masterpieces in their original language um, as a conduit for the perfection of the human being. And so they become this sort of a less theological approach to education, also a less mathematical logic-based approach to education, more rhetorical kind of approach to education that is going to lead to particular types of benefits for those students, which is it will make a person good and recognize the good life. And that those students who are studying in this humanistic way need to read specific works of Greek and Latin literature
2: because these works are masterpieces that are the keys to the good life for a human being. Because this is an excellent background Now to jump into the nineteenth century United States. Uh, you 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 talk in your book about the important role of classical humanities in early colleges in the United States, and then we had the birth of research universities and professional professionalization of uh, universities, uh, which was based on the German model. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, so, can what was the role of classical humanities in the United States in early colleges. How was it looked upon?
1: Yeah, so the, the first American college gets set up in 1636. It's originally called New College, and it changes its name very quickly to Harvard um, College, and then ultimately would be Harvard University. And these original colonial colleges are highly influenced by Oxbridge models. So Oxford and Cambridge end up being the chief, especially Cambridge, end up being the chief kind of pedagogical models for the schools. By that time at Oxbridge, um, humanism was dominant in higher education. There are still traces of scholasticism and other traditions and so forth in in, uh, British higher education, but scholasticism um, was sort of on the wane and humanism is the big deal. So as a result, um, partly uh, because of that, and partly because of theorists such as Leonardo Bruni, this important early theorist uh, from the Renaissance, Italian theorist of sort of a humanistic sort of education, the classical humanities dominated in American higher education. And this is the case really from the 17th century with the founding of Harvard College all the way, arguably, up till the Civil War in which at the vast majority of American institutions of higher learning, Latin and Greek were required subjects before you got there. So you needed to have an education in Latin and Greek in order to get into college. So the admissions examination, the original admissions examinations at these colleges would focus on Latin and Greek only. They would not study any other subjects or not test you in any other subjects. And Latin and Greek ended up being the dominant element of the curriculum. So one thing I should say, and this is, marks a major difference in American institutions of higher learning from prior to the Civil War to uh, now, uh, before the Civil War, American institutions of higher learning by and large had overwhelmingly prescribed curricula. That is to say, they didn't have majors, they didn't have electives, uh, with, or ver- with very few exceptions. They compelled all students to take the same courses in the same order because it was presumed that particular content Needed to be encountered by individual students in order for them to perfect themselves, right? So it was a kind of humanist rationale. They needed to study particular works of literature and also particular subjects because math ends up being a very important, playing a very important role in the physical sciences to some degree as well, prior to the Civil War uh, as well. But there's particular subjects that students and particular texts that students need to encounter during the course of their college educations to consider themselves educated. Uh, when they leave. So that marks a sort of major difference, I suppose, from um, antebellum American education to sort of postbellum American education.
2: And is it is it fair to say the rise of science in the United States kind of launched this battle of classics?
1: I think that's true. I mean, I don't think it's only the sciences that end up causing a kind of problem for the dominance of the classics in the American college curriculum. Um, But it's certainly one of the problems, I suppose. So one issue is that uh, in the early American colleges following the sort of, first of all, the classical, the highly classical pedigree of learning in the West more generally, but also the humanist influence on early American higher education, people would not study Shakespeare People would not study modern literature. They would not study modern languages. Um, Even English wouldn't necessarily be formally studied in these colleges at all. It would really all be Latin and Greek. Maybe some Hebrew in order to read the Old Testament. Maybe some Aramaic for similar reasons and so forth. Maybe some Sanskrit. But by and large, you're reading Latin and Greek texts overall. This naturally becomes very narrow-seeming to people who want to expand the curriculum, to include some other modern European languages, to include the social sciences as they get going in the 19th century, to include the natural sciences more fully, right? The, The humanists, including Bruni, had largely shunned the natural sciences because they perceived that education's goal was the perfection of character, and the study of, say, chemistry is not going to perfect your character. And therefore, it, you know, you should study a little bit of that, but not too much. They felt the same way about mathematics. Well, that's a kind of easier argument to make during the Renaissance when European culture is being revivified through um, a kind of flourishing of classical culture. But as you get through the sort of age of science and into the Enlightenment, it becomes harder and harder to defend the idea that a college curriculum should be dominated by Latin, Greek, and mathematics, and that people should study very little of other subjects too. So that sort of, there are a number of challenges, I suppose, to the prescribed classical curriculum, but certainly science plays a major role in that because it was given largely a sort of short shrift in the uh, curricula of the early American colleges.
2: And in this battle of classics in the 19th century, you talk about two major groups, the traditionalists and the modernists. The traditionalists follow the writings of Jean-Jacques Rousseau. The modernists follow Francis Bacon as their model. And I think... The modernists are also called scientific Democrats. I'm, I'm being too broad here because I'm just posing yeah, the question yeah. so you can talk about that. That's okay. Yeah, sure. Sure.
1: Yeah. So I would say, first of all, I would say about the Battle of the Classics itself, this is a name that is typically, typically given by historians of American higher education to a series of curricular battles focused Uh, overwhelmingly on elite college campuses, which received the most attention in the 19th century and today, which took place originally in the late decades of the 19th century, so the 1880s and 1890s and so forth, and into the early decades of the 20th century, right? And the traditionalists in in the so-called Battle of the Classics wanted to retain Latin and ancient Greek as required subjects of all students who went to college. This is what they want to do. They want to retain at least elements of the old prescribed curriculum, and they wanted there to be a classical foundation for American higher education as there had been since the colonial period. They want to retain that. The modernists in the Battle of the Classics wanted to remove the prescribed curriculum uh, entirely. They don't want Latin and Greek to be uh, prescribed. They don't want anything in large measure to be prescribed. They want to move toward an elective curriculum in which students could choose any subject that fits their fancy. And so these are the two sides, essentially, in the Battle of the Classics, in which they waged war about the comparative benefits of a classics-based prescribed curriculum versus a kind of choose-your-own-adventure elective curriculum. Um, and as I'm sure you know, anyone walking Earth would know, obviously, the modernist won and the traditionalists lost. And uh,
2: what was mental discipline theory can you talk about that one as well
1: yeah so one thing that i focus on um, in the book is that there was really a seismic change in the defenses that traditionalists made for the classical humanities over the course of time such that someone like leonardo bruni an early italian humanist makes the argument that every elite needs to study Greek and Latin masterpieces, because it will perfect your character. And so in his treatises, and he's not alone in this, this is very typical of Renaissance humanist treatises about um, education, he, he focuses on particular authors who need to be encountered, because these authors offer a model of wisdom, and also style in order to improve the character of of the students, right? So this is the early kind of Renaissance model of why or argument for, dominant argument for why the classics need to be encountered by all educated people. Well, as you get into the 19th century, you see inklings of this beforehand, but especially as you get into the 19th century in the United States, the arguments had really shifted from an argument that's based on content and the focus of this classical content on the inner lives of students to something called mental discipline instead. So mental discipline is a theory that is associated with um, Scottish common sense philosophy. And in essence, mental discipline perceives of the mind through the metaphor of a muscle, right? And so in the same way that somebody needs to exercise in order to keep one's body strong, one needs to exercise one's mind in order to um, improve the faculties of the mind itself, the sensibility, reason, the memory, and so forth. And so the argument in favor of the classical humanities on the part of the traditionalists during the Battle of the Classics becomes Latin and Greek need to remain required subjects of all students at university because they offer the best mental discipline. That is to say, it's the best kind of mental calisthenics that a student should get.
2: And that's why um, it needs to be retained. And um, what was the... the, And the traditionalists were kind of similar to today's defenders of humanities. They also emphasize the role of skills. Yes. And you talk about this... uh, this guy, Edward Thorndike's experiment, which sort of debunked and turned the whole argument against them. That was an interesting part of the book.
1: Yeah, yeah, thank you. So, so yes, you're right. Um, one part of the book, I focus on the idea that the mistake that was made during the course of the Battle of the Classics, it was really made beforehand, but it was kind of continued on during the Battle of the Classics, is that the dominant argument of the traditionalists focused on the skill of mental discipline. Right. And that they that this was a losing argument then. And that's why I'm trying to argue that it's a losing argument for the modern humanities now. Well, what ended up happening, I suppose, is that if you argue um, that mental discipline is what is chiefly offered, you set yourself up as a humanist for social scientists who are the prominent opponents of the traditionalists during the course of the Battle of the Classics to become the arbiters of education's value because social scientists can determine through empirical tests, um, which discipline actually offers the most mental discipline, right? Um, the, The classicists who are trying to defend the classical humanities as required subjects during the Battle of the Classics just sort of presumed that Latin was harder than chemistry or it was harder than German, or something like that. But they had no proof that that was true. So then they opened themselves up to the possibility that their curricular opponents, who wanted a larger role for the social sciences, among other subjects, they're going to be the ones who can test which subjects offer the most mental discipline. And then you get to people like new psychologists such as E.L. Thorndike or Edward Thorndike who tries to test, well, which subject ends up helping people's mental discipline more? Is it Latin studied in high school, or is it stenography classes. And he shows through this kind of uh, sort of insipid test he does, there's no difference between the two, right? So you've actually set up, the, the traditionalists made the mistake of setting up their curricular opponents as the judges of educational value. And I see this as directly applicable to our own situation because mental discipline is essentially the 19th century version of critical thinking. They're essentially the same sort of skill and they're being vouched for in the same way. So just as uh, mental discipline was insufficient to try to save the classical humanities in the 19th century, critical thinking will be insufficient as a means to try to save the modern humanities in the 21st century.
2: And uh, another interesting part of the book, there there are many interesting parts. I wish we could talk about all of them. So I do strongly encourage the listeners to. Pick up the book and start reading it. There was this uh, guy, Charles Francis Adams, who had this fiery speech in Harvard's graduation ceremony in 1883, if I'm not mistaken. A speech called a college fetish. Uh, what was that speech, and why was it important?
1: Yeah, so um, Charles Francis Adams Jr. Um, was from a very famous family in American history. Um, his, uh, he comes from two, the line of two presidents. His grandfather was John Quincy Adams, uh, was a president of the United States, and his great-grandfather was John Adams, who had been president of the United States uh, as well. And coming from this very fancy family, the men in his family, sort of as a rite of passage, went to Harvard. This is sort of you know what, what happened. And so Charles Francis Adams, Jr. went to Harvard uh, as well. And it turns out, however... Uh, in the course of his younger education, that Charles, uh, uh, Charles Francis Adams Jr. was really bad at Latin and Greek, such that he was basically kicked out of, the, the, uh, of his high school, um, the famous uh, Boston Latin school, because he was such a bad student and had to do private tutoring instead. And he seems to have harbored a kind of animus toward the classics as a result of his failures as a student earlier on. So when he was ultimately chosen to be the Phi Beta Kappa speaker at Harvard graduation in 1883, he decided to offer a kind of broadside against the classical humanities, and more specifically, against the idea that ancient Greek should remain a required subject for admissions examinations for Harvard. And so he offered this speech, and it caused just this whole craziness in American culture where newspapers all over the country focused on it and arguments were in favor of it and arguments opposed to it were offered. Um, part of it was that Adams focused on his own family. And he tried to make the argument that John Adams, John Quincy Adams, they all had been uh, mal-served by what he called the college fetish of focusing on uh, Latin and Greek and so forth. And ultimately, although there was a lot of pushback from traditionalists against um, Adams' views. Ultimately, three years later, in 1886, Harvard dropped ancient Greek as a required subject for its admissions examinations. So it ends up being a very... so, the, And Harvard ends up playing this very important role for other colleges that piggyback on what Harvard does oftentimes. And so that is sort of the beginning of the end of required collegiate Greek, uh, really comes from Adams's speech.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify.
2: And, and there was another famous debate between Charles W. Eliot, who was the president of Harvard, who was advocating for an elective curriculum, and James McCosh, who was a traditionalist. <laughs> and that was also an important moment in, um, let's say, in this battle of classics. Can you talk about this debate? Yes.
1: Yeah. So in 1885, there was a debate in New York City that was held between two college presidents, prominent college presidents. One is Charles W. Eliot, who was for 40 years the president of Harvard University from 1869 to 1909, and who was the most important figure in American higher education, I think, of all. Um, He is more responsible for the sort of curriculum that we have in American higher education, the sort of values that we have in American higher education, probably than any other individual figure in American history. He was not the first, but he was the most active and prominent advocate for the elective system, which was trying to argue that students should basically be able to choose all their own courses, right? There were in these days no majors and minors and so forth. So you could just have complete free market curriculum. And um, uh, Eliot himself, who was a chemist uh, by training, um, saw this as a kind of uh, curricular version of uh, Darwinian survival of the fittest. And he perceived that the disciplines should fight against one another for student attention, and that those disciplines that did not receive sufficient student attention would die, and rightly so, in the same way of a sort of survival of the fittest. He was engaged in this debate in New York City against a guy named James McCosh, who was the president, he was an older uh, man, he was born in 1811, um, who was the president of an institution then called the College of New Jersey, but now called Princeton University. And McCosh was a philosopher, but he was, and he was Scottish. He was very much a figure associated with the um, Scottish enlightenment, but was also uh, a strong evangelical uh, Presbyterian. And he was the head of Princeton and he argued in favor of um, the retaining of an element of prescription in the American college curriculum. And specifically, he liked required Greek. He thought that all students should continue to be required to study Greek. His argument, although it was partly based on mental discipline, which is sort of part of the mistake that he made, his argument was largely theological. He was very concerned about having an educated ministry in the United States, and he was very concerned that if students weren't required to study Greek during college, they may decide maybe later in college or later in their lives, that they have a calling to join the ministry but they don't have training in Greek. And correspondingly, they can't be ministers because they can't read the New Testament in its original language. So he's very concerned about how scrapping required Greek was going to lead to major, what, what Makash saw as major cultural changes in the United States that he thought were deleterious.
2: As you mentioned, Charles Elliott Charles had the upper hands in this debate, and it was a close friend of Herbert Spencer, right, uh, the <laughs> yes. Yeah.
1: yeah. It's it's actually, I mean, it's sort of uncomfortable, frankly, but he was called, Elliot was himself called a kind of the lone disciple of Herbert Spencer. I don't think that's true, but I do think that one of the things that's uncomfortable that's uh, picked up in my book is that Herbert Spencer, who was a British philosopher and scientist, but also a racist and social Darwinist who actually coins the terms, the survival of the fittest, ends up having this Huge impact on these early um, thinkers, such as Eliot uh, and others, who changed the college curriculum away from prescription toward election and, and who bases his own curricular ideas to some degree on racism. Um, And this kind of notion of a survival of the fittest and so this is one of the sort of uncomfortable legacies of um, the American college curriculum is that the original people who set up the kind of curriculum that is still the dominating element of the American college curriculum had attitudes and an ideology that I think we would many people at least would find pernicious today.
2: And what you said about this like because he he said that famous sentence that education like everything is is a survival of the fittest and you just said that. Well, if there are fewer students in the class, let's just scrap it. And unfortunately, it's still the kind of case, I don't know like about the United States. I studied in New Zealand myself, and now I live in Australia, in both countries. So I knew that in college, uh, professors, teachers, administrators were doing their best to get more and more students to come into their classes. I remember there was a course in New Zealand called Love and Betrayal. It's kind of a sexy, For it was yeah. actually a 19th century novels. Okay. Jane Austen. Right. and right. Then right. I had this student who went to these courses and said, so, well, I went to this school, I studied all these novels. There was no betrayal in any of these novels. Oh, right. <laughs> no anyway, yeah. right. 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 Um, it's just a tag to try to get people in, I yeah, guess. Is yeah. And, answer. and you know, we have this day in universities. I don't remember before the uh, semester starts where teachers and professors go and talk to students about what they can achieve, what is the outcome of this kind of, uh, this discipline. And of uh, again, I was talking to somebody else at the University of Melbourne who told me that, look, uh, we're all trying to be different in humanities. Uh, we're all criticizing, for example, this uh, new liberalization of education. But at the end of the day, we play into the hands of the uh, vice-chancelling university because we are trying to come and do this course in sociology or in English. We use game theory to critique the system, and then you can get a job in the, in the marketing industry. At the end of the day, we're all playing the same game without uh, knowing but anyway, let's get back to the book. You, so George Elliott played an important, sorry, Charles Eliot played an important role in, in, in establishing this elective system. But what is wrong with an elective curriculum? What are some of the issues with an elective curriculum there?
1: Right. Yeah, no, that's a great question. And um, a number of them were articulated, some of them by McCosh and, and by other traditionalists, especially Irving Babbitt, during the course of um, the Battle of the Classics. And I think they hold true uh, for today as well. First off, I I suppose I would say is that a completely elective curriculum gives students the sense that they are customers and perhaps in some senses that they have actually nothing to learn necessarily from previous generations. So the way Irving Babbitt put this is the wisdom of all the ages is to be not as compared with the inclination of a sophomore. And there's something kind of perverse, I suppose, about presuming that those people who are not educated can best choose what courses they need to take in order to be educated rather than those people who are educated. I mean, that makes sort of no sense, I think, overall. Second, I suppose, is, and this is what Babbitt has to say about the Rousseau kind of background of this, it's based, I think, on a faulty impression of human nature, according to which human beings are by nature good and therefore do not need a kind of self-improvement. And therefore, they can turn their attention entirely toward improving the world. But well, how does that work curricularly? Well, what I mean is students shouldn't be forced to take particular subjects or forced to study particular texts. Everything should be up to their own fancy, right? Because no one has anything to tell anybody else or what have you. So what happens in, in practice? What happens when you make everything completely elective? Well, one thing that happens is, at least at my university, and you can see lots of evidence of this, and I'm sure this is true um, elsewhere throughout the system. If you allow students to choose whatever they want, what do they choose? Classes that don't meet on Friday, those that aren't at nine in the morning, those that they hear are the easiest teachers, those that require the least amount of work and so forth, right? Is this actually the best way to educate people? Is to let them pick and choose the, the easiest courses that they can find to get the same degree that they would get otherwise? It doesn't really make any sense. If anything, it's a kind of survival of the unfittest. Those subjects that least educate you are those that are most likely to survive because they're least taxing. And I think you could point probably to any university in which you will find some subjects that most faculty members think are kind of not as serious or not as hard hard as other subjects that have huge numbers of majors, and those that are very, very serious and very difficult that have small numbers of majors. And the reason is obviously that there's a general inclination, not everybody, but most people are as lazy as they can get away with. And so under the circumstances, they'll pick what's easiest. I don't think that that's actually a good way to run a curriculum. And then another thing that I would point out is that, I mean, and Babbitt pointed this out before me, but the word curriculum really does from Latin means a running together and that there's some sense of intellectual commonality, right? Well, what we have now in American higher education is kind of lounging separately, right? At my university, you cannot presume that any two students at my university who finished their undergraduate degrees where I am have read even one book in common. Not one, right? Not the Bible, uh, not the Quran, nothing, right? nothing. Not not the Republic, not the elite, nothing, right? Um, what kind of a culture are we setting up if we actually think that there's no content to an education, that all it is is about job-ready skills and so forth? We play into the hands of anti-humanists if we make those kinds of arguments. And I think we also underplay the role of the imagination in human flourishing, that individual texts and you know you're uh, uh, have a, a english phd so you'll know this very well but individual texts have um, masterworks especially have a kind of way of getting into our souls and giving us a sense of what's possible in the human world. And if we just say, oh, take a humanities class, it doesn't really matter. It could be about um, comic books or it could be the Odyssey. It doesn't make any difference, right? We're really underplaying what we as humanities scholars offer to students because what people study matters. That's one reason I think why the critical thinking or soft skills kinds of arguments always end up in failure is that they really underplay what the humanities offer to a human being.
2: right?
1: And I think they are reinforced, if you will, by an elective curriculum that essentially says, the elective curriculum itself says, skills are all that matter, because if it's completely elective, then there's going to be no common content. And if there's no common content,
2: then content doesn't matter. Skills are all you get. Uh, Now let's talk about the most important figure in the book. You've mentioned him several times, Erwin Babbitt. So maybe we can now delve deeper into his ideas, uh, you 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 suggest that he could be the model actually to defend humanities even today in, the, in these times. And he wrote this famous book that you mentioned at the beginning of the interview, American College Essays in Defense of the Humanities. So can you tell us more about him and uh, how he defended humanities? What was his critique of maybe traditionalists and modernists? Yes. How does yes. He- Offer us yeah, a way forward. Uh, yeah,
1: uh, yeah. thank you. So, I mean, I do think I would say, and I'm, I'm sure you'll agree with this, that his critique needs to be updated. I mean, he was writing something in the early 20th century, so this is obviously not completely um, suited for our own times. But so Irving Babbitt was a scholar of French and comparative literature um, who taught at Harvard University, although he was classically trained and he also um, received an education um, in Orient, what was then called Oriental Studies. So he studied uh, Pali and Sanskrit as well for his graduate degree. Although he didn't get a PhD, he got a master's degree. In those days, you could still do that and have a, a, a college career. And he ends up being the kind of chief figure associated with a school of literary and social criticism, chiefly in the United States, called the New Humanism. Right? Babbitt lived from 1865 until 1933, and he, and especially a guy named Paul Elmer Moore, who was his best friend and a number of followers, cobbled together this movement that they called the New Humanism, which was an attempt to revivify, but also alter in some sense and broaden the humanistic tradition in the United States. And like humanists before him, Babbitt was very concerned about education because he thought education was really important to human flourishing. And so Babbitt turned out to be a strong critic of what he called humanitarianism, but I think would better be called pseudo-humanitarianism because Babbitt was not opposed to genuine humanitarianism. Um, and he believed, I think correctly, that humanism in American higher education had been eclipsed by thinkers such as Charles W. Eliot in favor of a kind of false or pseudo-humanitarianism instead. So what he argued, or one thing that he argued, was that all humanists, um, implicitly at least, if not explicitly, believe um, in a kind of dualism in human beings, that human beings have higher potentialities and they have lower potentialities. And that what's so important about education is that education should offer for students an introduction to profound texts that the generations before them have found important that enable students to live up to their higher potentialities and tamp down their more base inclinations as well. So a notion of um, self-improvement is really important to the kind of humanist project that before you try to improve the world, you should improve yourself first, because what you conceive of as improving the world may actually not be improving the world. You have to make sure that you're a good person first, right? And that Babbitt perceived that the movement away from the prescribed classical curriculum toward an elective curriculum was the movement away from humanism, the perfection of the self, toward what he called um, humanitarianism. But again, I feel more comfortable calling pseudo-humanitarianism, of which he believed that there were two types. One scientific, right, um, which is the Baconian idea, right, is the idea that you you go to college, not in order to improve yourself, it's to gain mastery over the world right? And so over the natural forces of the world, right? Which Babbitt didn't see as necessarily wrong overall. It's good. Science is good. Math is good and so forth. But he believed that if you only have that, this is terrible because people will not genuinely improve the world if they haven't improved themselves, right? So this is one. And then the other part is a sort of sentimental humanitarianism, which Babbitt associated with Rousseau. Rousseau famously argues that man is good by nature, Right. And as a result, man needs to man or woman needs to follow their innate impulses, which are by nature good. And therefore, self-improvement is unimportant. Right. And according to that, this is sort of the the wellspring of the uh, elective system. Let students pick whatever their classes are. Their inclinations will naturally be good. And therefore, they'll choose whatever is most suiting to their own personalities. Babbitt perceived that this was a fundamental misunderstanding of human nature. That offered way too rosy an impression of what people will ultimately study if they go to college, that's going to lead to a kind of disaster for human beings because people, in order to live productive but happy lives, need to rein in their
2: lower impulses and allow their better impulses to shine through. And if today we want to defend (coughs) humanities, this is the avenue you personally, I mean, uh, you would take as well.
1: I think so. So I think it's, it's related. You can see this as far back as Cicero is that, that the reading of particular texts is going to have a kind of um, uh, effect on the souls of students. And therefore, that particular texts are the best conduits for students for themselves to come up with their own answers to life's great questions. In another respect, also, I think Babbitt is important. He doesn't go far enough because of, I think, the time period in which he lives as far as his explicit curricular sort of instruction. But I think that it's implicit in what Babbitt's doing overall is that Babbitt also was greatly interested in broadening the humanistic tradition to look beyond the confines of its classical foundation and also its Western foundation. And he conceived that individual thinkers that were canonical in other traditions could be conceived of as humanists in the same way. His chief examples of this are the Buddha, right, Confucius, um, but also Hindu texts as well. And he perceived that they have similar ways of looking at the human predicament from a classical and also a Christian perspective on things. So implicit in Babbitt's ideas then is the notion that there should be some sort of core curriculum that students at a college should encounter in order to be able to think about their answers to life's great questions and ponder how they can live up to their higher potentialities, but that this curriculum should not merely be the sort of dead white males of the older great books sorts of tradition, and instead should be a kind of global core curriculum that doesn't just look at so-called Western thinkers, but looks at thinkers from a variety of traditions. And in fact, the overspill between traditions like Confucianism and Buddhism and Christianity and so forth hint at the possible notion that different civilizations that had perhaps minimal contact with one another have come up with similar answers to life's great questions and therefore especially need to be pondered by students who are thinking through those very uh, same issues. Mm
2: -hmm. And it was an excellent point you just mentioned because... uh... A couple of days ago, I was talking to Professor Renz Bott. You might know he wrote this book. Yeah, really, yeah. He works his history of humanities. yeah he's one of yeah. And this is a question that I asked him as well. I said, What I liked about the book, because I was also personally biased. I, I'm originally from Iran myself. So I studied mm-hmm. English literature in Iran, did my bachelor's, master's, there, then I went to New Zealand to do my PhD. But I guess I was, because I had my education in English literature, I guess I was in a way biased as well. Because when I picked mm-hmm. up that book, The History of Humanities, I was expecting to read something from, you know, Greek and Roman, starting from antiquity all the way to the modern times, Europe-based. But when I read the book, there were a lot of references to Islamic culture, to Asia, to India, and it was all humanities. And it was amazing to see, uh, as you just mentioned, without having, let's say, a lot of context, but they had a lot of similar concerns, similar debates, similar issues that they were obsessed with, that they were talking about. Right. And I guess this is a perfect segue to my next question, which is this more recent Let's say uh, push towards decolonizing humanities, which is uh, I personally think it's a good thing, but sometimes it's taken to extreme by canceling classics. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. And you are a professor of classics, so what do you think right. about this? Uh, I, especially, the, right. I'm especially concerned about like the part that a lot of people, some people go to extreme to cancel classics because because of anachronistic ways of reading into those texts. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. So I guess my sort of argument is that I am very much in favor of broadening. And I think that a lot of the arguments in favor of broadening a kind of core curriculum um, both fit the the nature of American society and maybe global society more generally. Mm. Um, I think that the argument that having a core curriculum that's essentially a kind of Plato to NATO kind of curriculum that focuses only on the so-called Western tradition ends up having a sort of pernicious effect in a number of different ways. One is it makes some students feel like they're more included in the university project than others. Um, But I think it also can reinforce certain types of parochial identities Mm -hmm. rather than any sort of sense of a common humanity, which at least in the United States, I think we desperately need. Um, As a as a bulwark against some of the other tensions that we see in American culture today. Um, But I'm opposed to canceling. Um, So I think that we can do this through a broadening, right? There's uh, rather than a canceling. Um, The canceling, it seems to me, is based on, as you suggest, uh, in some ways, anachronistic readings of these particular texts, and more oftentimes the ways they've been used, because there have been very bad ways that these texts have been used as well. But that's worth learning about as well, it seems to me, right? So no one, I'm not trying to argue that people should read these texts because they are unparalleled sources of wisdom that cannot be um, criticized in any particular way. Rather, I think the texts that should be required in a core curriculum, first of all, they should be reasonably inclusive. I don't think given the time frame we are talking about, they can be um, omnicultural, but it certainly should be multicultural in its uh, time frame. But also, I think they should be texts that The civilizations from which they come have been perceived to be especially valuable windows into some of life's great questions. Um, And I think it'd be particularly valuable for there to be a global context rather than merely a Western context to that, both as far as, you know, the nature of American culture, but also to fight against some of the parochialism that I think is that you see as a feature in American higher education. So there's no reason to cancel the classics. There's no reason to cancel philosophy. There's no reason to go overboard and only read certain texts that weren't read in the past. Right. Instead, I think that we can supplement and broaden, which is going to include taking some things out and adding some other things as well. But I do think is ultimately going to lead to a more satisfying and representative sort of core curriculum from the one ones that have dominated in the past.
2: And let me ask you one final question. Again, a broad question. Uh, you have studied the history of this, uh, let's say, development of humanities, how it has changed. How do you see the future of humanities, uh, maybe in the United States or around the globe, especially after COVID-19 and a constant battle against humanities, still yeah. in terms of defunding those decisions? Yeah,
1: I mean, of course, if I had a crystal ball and knew precisely what was going to happen, I wouldn't be some, you know, guy working in the back ends of a classics department or something like that. I'd be out making money, you know, or something like that, if I, if I had all the answers to what's going to happen in the future. I do worry, however, that the trends seem to indicate that the humanities are going to continue to shrink, at least in the United States, but seemingly elsewhere as well, from reading books about Britain and reading books about Australia and so forth. It doesn't seem like it's better in other contexts either. Um, And what I worry about is that what's going to end up happening is it's going to end up being a return to some elements of earlier American higher education. In the very early days of American higher education, an exceedingly small percentage of people went to these um, colleges that had the classical curriculum and so forth. And now, especially with the passage of the GI Bill in 1944, much larger percentages of Americans go to college. Well, if the humanities end up getting kind of cut Um, from various universities over the course of time, what may end up happening is that the vast majority of American students who go to college are going to be able to study really only vocational subjects. Mm. And it's only students at exceedingly wealthy prestigious institutions that will have the opportunity to study the humanities very seriously because those institutions have so much money that they don't really have to worry about how small their classics department is as far as enrollment is concerned and so forth. So you may get this kind of situation that goes back to the early days in which only a very small elite get a kind of humanistic sort of education and everybody else gets kind of job training essentially instead. I think that would be a, tr- a terrible thing for American culture and a real regression if we end up giving the vast majority of Americans nothing but vocationalism and a small elite um, the access to the humanities and the liberal arts more generally.
2: Well, I, in a positive sense, I hope you will be wrong, but <laughs> <laughs> the evidence is not in favor of us. Uh, Professor Eric Adler, thank you very, very much for taking the time to talk to us. And I do encourage our listeners to get this book, The Battle of the Classics, How a 19th Century Debate Can Save the Humanities Today. Thank you for your time, Professor Eric Adler. Thank you so much.